The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello and welcome to the quarterly update podcast for the Loomis Sales Core Plus Bond Fund, where our portfolio managers get to share their thoughts on the markets and their strategies. My name is Erica Casal, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Peter Palfrey, one of the portfolio managers on this fund. Thanks for joining me today, Peter. My pleasure. All right, and I think we have plenty to talk about. Um, Monetary policy did seem to continue to drive a lot of headlines and really conversations, volatility for for equity and fixed income investors alike. Um, Even as we started the second quarter, we had the remnants of some of the volatility we saw from the bank crisis. Ending the quarter, we got that long-awaited pause from the Fed interest rate hikes, but consensus does seem to think that we're going to see over the next few meetings maybe a continuation in the tight monetary policy that we, we've seen for, for quite some time now. Um, Peter, what do your team think about the outlook as far as Fed policy as we get into the second half of the year? Have we seen enough improvement in the inflation to, to really get a longer-term pause? So after 525 basis points now of, of tightening, at least incorporating next week's expected decision, and that is priced at about 100% probability of another 25. So 125 basis points over about a year and a quarter, third perhaps, um, you know, that's pretty dramatic tightening. And that's coupled with with you know, several hundred billion of, of quantitative tightening. So yes, the Fed has done a lot, and I think we are nearing the end game. Um, what was notable during Q2, though, is that we had a couple different um, big events. Um, as you pointed out, there was the banking crisis, um, which was subsequently followed up with um, some you know, kind of continuation of some not planned um, inflation prints. And so really, that was kind of a one-two punch. So initially, we had um, a spike in rates, you know, going into the early March period, and then, and then, of course, that was the catalyst for, you know, for a, a very sharp retracement in all risk markets, and about a 70 to 100 basis point rally in the belly of the curve, um, and that seemingly took the Fed off the table for a period of time. But of course, by end of quarter, as you noted, we had retraced and rates were back up near cycle highs, and the Fed was once again back on the table. So net-net, what we've gotten is um, you know three hikes this year, only 25 base points of each. Um, you know, in, in each increment. So a step down from the you know the much more rapid pace last year, we had where we had multiple 50 basis point hikes and even 75 basis point hikes. I believe about four consecutive 75 basis point hikes. So um, so down from that pace, but certainly a pretty dramatic repricing of the Fed. Um, now, from a going forward basis, you know the question is going to be how much more from the Fed. You know, we're presently at five and a quarter. Um, the market's fully discounting a five and a half percent terminal. Um, there's a about a twenty percent probability of another skip, and then perhaps one more twenty-five, which would come in the beginning of November. Um, you know, clearly the data is going to determine that one. We suspect that we're getting sufficient improvement in the on the inflation front that the Fed is. Is going to be done after next week's hikes, and then as you look at you know the core PCE numbers or or the core CPI numbers, was there anything that stood out as far as drivers there? Um, 
between either between yes, either number? Absolutely. I mean, so so dramatic improvement on the headline CPI number. We went from a peak of I believe it was nine point one down to the present just below. I think it's two two point nine six. So just below three percent. So a dramatic improvement there. The core numbers, however, have been stickier. Uh, we peaked at five point four percent in July last year. Presently, we're at four six. Um, we you know based on our forward ex- estimates on on the you know, on the um, inputs from housing, from used car prices, you know, some of the higher, you know, some of the higher inflationary um, pressure um, sectors, we're estimating that core PCE will have dropped to 3.5% year over year by end of year. Um, But notably, that'll probably be a 0.2 kind of continuous run rate on a month over month basis. And of course, 0.2 annualizes to about 2.5%. So we are coming down fairly rapidly on the core side as well. And that's really what the Fed's going to focus on. So I think that that's what's going to ultimately give us the, um, you know, enough of a pass, if you will, from the Fed that they can just kind of stand pat at at that um, 5.5% terminal level. And and perhaps that'll signal the end of Fed tightening. Not necessarily, you know, and the next question, of course, is going to be, does that mean there's going to be a reversal of Fed policy? We don't think so yet. We think that that's actually going to signal a hold for a period of time, and that's going to be really key. And you know, and importantly, the market is repriced that way. You know, prior to um, you know prior to the um, kind of the solution, if you will, it was a near-term solution of the S- um, SVB banking crisis. Um, you know, the the thought was that the Fed was going to have to reverse policy almost immediately, and and would find ourselves 150 basis points lower within 12 months. That's not in the pricing anymore. So. I think that we're we're probably going to be higher for longer, and and we're going to have to live with you know with fairly restrictive monetary policy until it does enough damage on the economic front, both in terms of bringing down inflation, but also in terms of loosening up the very tight labor market in particular, and you know especially those services inflation numbers you know will will have to come down further to give the Fed enough uh, wiggle room, if you will, to to subsequently reverse policy. Thanks, Peter. And you did read my mind a little bit there because I think uh, the next question that I was going to pick your brain about is because, you know, when we were here a quarter ago, um, we we generally do talk about, you know, where we are in the credit cycle. This has been a very long awaited recession. Um, But as far as, you know, how your team's portfolio construction process uh, runs, how that you begin, you do take that top-down macro view of the marketplace. And I think the last time we were together, the team maintained that we were still in that late expansion phase. Um, would you say that the team thinks that we've we've changed where we are at this point, or or do you think we're still in that late expansion phase? More of the same. More of the same. I mean, we're clearly late expansion phase of the credit cycle, clearly because we're seeing pressure on top-line revenue growth in corporations. We're seeing um, pressure on margins. We're seeing some some softening of the labor market. Uh, we haven't that hasn't really come through on the unemployment side yet. But if you look at um, you know the let's say the Atlanta Fed wage tracker or other measures of of um, of wage growth, it is starting to moderate, and we're seeing some flattening out um, even in the services sector, which is something new. You know, really it it had been more concentrated in some of the sectors that are more cyclical, that were more immediately affected by tighter credit standards. And the services sector in general had been holding up. But now we're actually getting some price disinflation, not deflation, but disinflation um, in some of the services sectors that where worker shortages were a real problem in the post-pandemic period. So, so yes, I think we're we're getting closer there on, on that side. 
And as far as, you know, sure, you you mentioned plenty of, I think, indicators that are, are starting to show some weakness. Um, I think we were even talking about, you know, student loans starting uh, relatively soon um, that might put another strain on the U.S. consumer. But would you say that a, a recession is still imminent for the U.S.? It's always about timing, and and it's a, it's tricky business, obviously, to call a recession. Um, even even with the currently published data, oftentimes what we find is is um, a year or so later, it'll subsequently be revised, and you'll say, oh, we are actually in recession. Let's say summer of 2023, and 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 yet all the data seems to point to positive growth right now. So so it is difficult to call an absolute start. But with that said, we think that there's an accumulation of evidence that credit standards are tightening. And this is this was already in place after the 500 some odd basis points of Fed tightening. But on top of that, of course, we did have that banking crisis that severely impacted all banks, but also regional banks in particular. And regional banks account for the vast majority of lending to smaller businesses and, and to consumers as well. And there we think that we've seen dramatic tightening in credit standards, and that's just starting to flow through. So one interesting stat is the New York Fed has conducted a survey over the past decade um, where they they look at the acceptance rates of um, used car application um, applications for loans. And so interestingly, this is called the rejection rate. And, and interestingly, just back in February, the rejection rate for a used car loan was coming in around uh, just over 9%. Today, that's over 14%. So that shows um, a pretty dramatic constriction or, or, or tightening of credit standards uh, for the more marginal borrower. Um, you know, of course, you know, used car loan market is is primarily skewed towards lower to mid-tier borrowers, um, and so so that tells you something about the health of the economy at the margin. And it does mean that credit standards are are likely tightening for all cohorts, not just for the lowest tier. Um, so we think that you've got tighter credit standards, um, you've got a slowing in economic activity, um, you've got a slowing in hiring. Um, that coupled with some additional strains on the consumer. So, for instance, you had mentioned student loans. They're going to kick back in after, what, a three-year pause. Um, they're going to kick back in on, on October 1. And so for the average borrower, that's going to be, I believe it's something like 150 bucks more per month. And for some borrowers, it could be hundreds of dollars. So that, too, will be a further restriction on, on the you know, liquidity and the ability to spend. So that'll be a big impact. So even as inflation is moderating, which is a positive, I think there are certain headwinds. And so that, among other things, I think is, is going to be pushing us closer to that tipping point where corporations perhaps have to start laying off people. They have to start paying more attention to, you know, to the bottom line. And, and that's never a good thing for the consumer. And I guess, I mean, maybe even summing up a little bit, you know, given that your opinion does seem to be that we are um, still moving towards a recession, um, that we are hopefully getting to the end of that that hiking cycle from the Fed. How are you viewing duration? So duration in, you know, in, in one word for, for 2022, it was pain. It equaled pain. Um, duration in 2023 takes on a very different form, though. We now have a dramatic repricing of the entire bond market. Um, Treasury yields are all in the fours or even the low fives if you go into the front end of the curve. Corporate bonds trade at yields of anywhere from, say, 5 to 7%. High-yield bonds trade from 
6 to 10% or higher if you're willing to go down to asset quality. So there's been a dramatic repricing of the bond market. And so duration is no longer, I would no longer say it equates to pain. In fact, high quality duration, I would argue, has become um, one of the most important hedges that you can have in a portfolio. And so I, I, I fear that a lot of investors were so burned last year by having duration of any kind, especially in high quality assets, and just experiencing that full repricing of the bond market that they're now shying away from duration in this market. And oftentimes, you know, we as investors are backward looking instead of forward looking. And I think the thing that you have to really focus on is the fact that the Fed is at or very, very close to at terminal in terms of pricing. And we think that inflation has turned the corner, is coming down. We think that the economy as a whole is slowing. The global economy is slowing. There are greater headwinds globally. And so that, we think, sets you up to actually want high quality duration in your portfolio. And so when we're talking about the timing, you know that is a tricky one to call. You know we're guessing that the that some kind of downturn and it can be modest, but we think that some kind of economic contraction is likely to start in Q4 and go through, say, the first quarter, maybe longer into into 2024. But it'll be it'll be modest, and I think it'll be a bump along type of thing. But the problem is, is that we're priced for a perfect soft landing. You know all the risk asset markets. Um, you know the equity market. I mean, you know we're priced for pretty much perfection, and we just think that's that's unlikely. So you're going to want high quality duration in your portfolio as an offset to other risk positions that you may have. All right. So you heard it here, folks. Duration is not a bad word anymore. Um, I just want to. I will. I'll, let's pause our discussion there. I, I have another question on duration specific. We'll come back to that. But maybe let's shift gears and look at the portfolio. Um, and of course, you know, the second quarter, uh, the fund did perform well um, relative to major fixed income indices. But it does seem like we had a, a little bit of a, a drag on performance just across fixed income mar- markets overall. Uh, the fund was down slightly. I think it was roughly 0.69% outperforming the bench with the U.S. Uh, aggregate index, which was down roughly 84 basis points. Uh, could you talk about what the primary drivers and detractors that led to that performance? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I just talked about duration. So duration can bite at times. And for that one period, no question, the repricing of rates higher post-SVB um, clearly hurt investors to some degree. Certainly nothing like last year where we had double-digit negative total returns in high-quality bonds. Um, but we repriced higher, so um, being long duration, and we are positioned long duration, especially in high quality assets, um, was a modest negative for us in that quarter. Yet we still had enough diversification across other drivers of performance that we were able to outperform the index. Um, now, importantly, since the end of the quarter, we've some, subsequently seen a pretty dramatic repricing once again, and we seem to be migrating back lower in yields. And we do think that second half of this year, we're likely to see dramatic lower yields. Now, in terms of specific drivers of performance during the quarter, um, being long duration was a negative. Um, However, that was countered by being underweight IG credit. And during the quarter, IG credit spreads actually widened. And so being underweight 
both in terms of market value exposure as well as duration exposure. So the duration contribution to our allocation there was lower than that of market. So that was a, a positive. Um, we were at a um, approximately 4.5% fixed rate high yield position. Fixed rate high yield actually had a positive total return during the quarter despite the backup in yield. So that was accretive. Our non-dollar exposure continued to be a rock star. Um, it was up 8% during the quarter. And, um, and of course, you know, great diversifiers. So we own approximately 1.5% Mex peso, 1.5% Uruguayan peso. Both of those had very strong currency expo uh, currency returns, but also um, we got the benefit of, of um, price appreciation on their very high yielding government bonds. So for instance, in, in, in Mexico, their government bonds were yielding close to 9%. They rallied into the eights uh, for 10-year obligation. And in Uruguay, their bonds were um, yielding in the 10% range and rallied into the nines, the high nines. So, so we had price appreciation on the bonds and currency appreciation as well. So again, big diversifier there. Um, other um, other exposure in the portfolio that was accretive included our um, our very high quality front end maturity asset backed ex um, asset backed exposure so credit cards auto receivables but double AA, A triple A um, so we're very up in quality up in structure um, our high quality double AA, A triple A CLO exposure also generated very strong positive. Um, returns and of course CLOs like bank loans are, are um, not sensitive directly to a change in rates expectations or to you know, Fed tightening. So, um, so they continue to um, generate positive returns as well. So, um, you know, it was it was kind of a, a mediocre quarter, granted, but um, didn't disrupt our strong total return and absolute you know in absolute terms and relative terms on a year-to-date basis. And going forward, I think we have a very very strong tailwind in terms of performance. Um, as far as you know, from the, the beginning of the second quarter to now, and and given the current market environment we're facing, could you talk about how you're changing the positioning of the the core sectors of the portfolio, the more ag-like parts of the portfolio? Yeah, for us, it's all about being up in quality, up in price transparency, and up in liquidity as we get closer and closer to some kind of economic contraction, some kind of economic downturn. Uh, we don't think that risk markets are currently compensating investors adequately for for being in IG, let's say at 125 over, being in high yield sub 400 basis points. Um, you know, those are fairly tight levels, especially given that we feel that there's a high probability of some kind of economic downturn at some point over the next several quarters. And, you know, timing may be pushed out, but nevertheless, there will be an economic contraction. And we think that that you're likely to be penalized for being in those markets. So we're, we're very low allocations in the plus sectors to those risk markets, and we're underweight within the core piece of it. So IG in particular, um, it's a seven-duration asset class. Um, we are about six percentage points market value underweight IG. We have a skew towards what we consider to be late cycle corporate credits, um, higher quality overall uh, relative to um, some of the more pro, you know, some of the more procyclical sectors, more defensive in that sense. And um, and it's a nice way just to earn some incremental carry for that allocation and yet be less sensitive to a repricing of that market. And we've found that on a year-to-date basis, that allocation has been accretive for us by being skewed towards you know, the, the areas that we are in, in more, you know, I'd call them defensive, crossover, triple B, single A type credits, but still being overweight, um, underweight rather to the overall sector. Um, 
Within the um, securitized sector, we are underweight by about five percentage points to agency MBS. Um, you know, that sector has been a laggard on a year-to-date basis. Um, we actually did a tactical reduction in the, in the allocation there um, back in February when spreads briefly hit um, cycle tights, and that was a, a nice, you know, a nice opportunity for us to further our underweight to that sector, and that sector actually subsequently widened out pretty dramatically during the SVB uh, First Republic Bank crisis because, of course, a lot of those um, ailing regional banks needed to liquidate securitized holdings, and so there was a lot of technical pressure on that market, and that coupled with the Fed's continued um, QT um, efforts on the on the HC MBS side put a lot of pressure on that market. So being underweight, that sector was also a, a good way to be more defensive during in this kind of volatile, you know, roughly seven months so far this year. Um, going forward, that sector actually looks more attractive, though, and so that could be a, that could be an opportunity for us to add back to that sector. But we'd like to get past this potential period of of, of turmoil coming from uh, forced liquidations coming from banks and and just investor malaise in general over the securitized market. Very fair, and I think we'll we'll just have to wait and see there. Um, and then I guess looking towards the the plus sectors of the portfolio, some of the more tactical alpha driver um, positions that your team will use. Are there any sectors that you're finding uh, particularly attractive heading into the end of the year, or or any danger zones that you're avoiding? So it's interesting. Overall, to the plus sectors, we have about 11% um, allocated, and that's on the low end of the range historically. Historically, it's been as low as, say, 8% at the very trough levels, and that was really the period going into the um, 08 downturn, for instance, um, to as high as um, 40%, um, you know, when we're in a more, um, you know, more um, pro-risk period of, of um, the market cycle. So um, so we're on the low end, but with that said, uh, we have still maintained about 4.5% to the fixed rate high yield market. Um, you know, it's not that we love high yield here, but we think that we can still earn enough incremental carry in front-end higher-quality high yield in more defensive credits, especially those that we think are crossover candidates, to justify having a, um, an exposure there, even with spreads fairly tight. All-in yields in the high-yield market, as you know, are close to 9%. Um, so that's that's pretty generous. You know, anything above eights and change historically has been pretty good. So, so despite the fact that we think that high yield is priced pretty aggressively, uh, we've found some select names there. Um, on the CLO market, we have about 3% allocation there. Um, that's AA, AAA exposure. Um, we feel that that's a very defensive way to play the uh, levered loan market. Um, so we have structural seniority. Um, it's a way to have a floating rate instrument that has repriced with the Fed fund um, you know, hikes that we've seen on over the past you know year plus. Um, so that's been a good way to get extra yield in the portfolio um, without taking on a lot of credit risk. Um, and then finally, the non-dollar piece. Um, as I mentioned before, that's truly been the superstar part of the portfolio. Um, at peak this year, we had um, about 4.8% to non-dollar. We did a tactical um, reduction in our MEX peso exposure. It had outperformed, you know, even our very you know aggressive expectations. And you know, year to date now, it's up. The peso is up about 17%, including bond performance. It's up well over 20%. So it's been a fabulous performer. So we did monetize some of the gains there, but we've still maintained about 1.5% to MEX peso. And our Uruguayan peso, as I mentioned, is still at about 1.5%. So 3.1% total right now. Great. Thanks, Peter, for that insight. And then I did want to 
end our session today, kind of going back to to that duration conversation, I wanted to answer one of, I think, one of the most common questions that we're still getting from investors um, today. Um, and it's really, they're asking the question of if it's time to exit their their ultra short duration assets. And if you look at the yield on, you know, the ultra short, you know, three months T-bill, it's not a ridiculous question. But given the opportunity set that we're looking at that, that you just covered, would you say that today is a good time for investors to consider extending duration in their, their fixed income portfolios? Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. I mean, so many people are are you know looking at the inversion of the yield curve and saying, gee, I can get five and a half percent on a three month bill, or I can get five and a quarter percent on one one year bill, and that looks very very compelling. And and versus our recent history, absolutely very compelling. The trick though is what happens when that instrument matures. You know, so a three month bill. So sometime between now and year end, um, yeah, you can probably reinvest around the same level. But what happens a year from now? Let's say you buy that one year, you know, bill at um, at five and a quarter percent or so. A year from now, we think that there's a high probability that we're pricing in some kind of economic contraction. It doesn't have to be severe, but just a retracement of how much the Fed has tightened already. You know, so right now, let's say we get 25 basis points next week in the July meeting, and so we're at five and a half percent, and let's say the Fed's done. Um, that would put the Fed at about 300 basis points restrictive relative to long-run neutral. And so we think that that's the kind of the room that the Fed has to play with in terms of repricing monetary policy easier should economic weakness start to creep back into our economy. You know, so between the jobless rate and, and the amount of economic activity, those will be drivers you know, coupled, of course, with the repricing of inflation lower and expectations lower. Um, that's, you know, that's kind of the room that we're playing with. And so we think that if you, if you look at the reinvestment risk, that's the part I think that many investors miss. And so, you know, I did do some some back of the envelope um, calculations on our portfolio, and and so let's let's just take a look at these numbers. Um, one year bill, five and a quarter percent. That's what you're going to earn. A year from now, our expectation is that reinvestment rate could be a three handle, let's say, because the Fed is likely to retrace some of its you know, excessive tightening that they did to try to squash um, uh, the inflation. So, so over a two-year period, let's say you're going to get a blended rate of five percent, but then three percent. So you're going to have what you know what is that? That's eight four percent, you know, return over a two-year period. Over that same two-year period, if you take let's say a product like ours, so we have a duration of seven point five years. Um, very high quality, very you know, very liquid. Roughly seventy percent, double AA, A, triple A, and governments. That's pretty close to what you know what you have in the index. Um, we've got a, a yield portfolio yield of about five, just over five percent. So, so that combination. If you get let's say a more severe downturn, two hundred basis point retracement in rates, you're going to get basically two times seven and a half durations. So you're going to get a 15% price return on our product plus the carry of, of you know, roughly 500 basis points. So that's near 20% total return if everything just stays unchanged and spread and everything else. And 
you know, that, that may or may not be a good assumption. But the point is, is that very significant total return. Let's say you get kind of a softer landing. So you get the, you know, a disinflationary type, type scenario. Um, in that scenario, maybe there's just a modest repricing of rates, maybe 100 basis points instead of 200 basis points from this peak level that we're currently you know, likely to see next week. If you got that, then you get that 7.5% price return plus 500 basis points of carry, and you're still you know, 12 plus percent total return. So the point is, is that duration can be a very important diversifier you know, if you're in a stable to, you know, to weakening economic environment. And we think that is highly probable. You know, to us, it's not a question of will there, will there be a downturn. It's just when and what the magnitude of the downturn will be. And interestingly, even, um, you know, we do a lot of scenario testing. And one of our scenarios, which we assign just a, a 30% probability to, is that you have stubbornly high inflation. It just persists for the next year plus, and the Fed has to keep on going at it and tightening policy. So under that scenario, um, we assume two more Fed hikes this year. Uh, we assume that rates then stay at elevated levels for an extended period of time. Our scenario then assumes that, that that's enough pressure on the economy that it starts to roll over. You know, so credit conditions are already, already tight here. Now they get even tighter, and that just forces companies to pull back. It forces the consumer to pull back. There's a rise in the unemployment rate, and eventually the Fed does have to you know, respond. So interestingly, in that scenario, our portfolio with a 7.5 duration is down, say, 3.5% or so over the first six months, but it's up another 8% positive total return in the next six months after that because you have higher carry from a higher level and you start to get that retracement in rates that's likely to come second half of next year. So even in our downside you know, scenario, we have positive total returns that are comparable to what you can get in the front end. So to us, it's just a, it's a no-brainer to have some protection in your portfolio from a high-quality, diversified portfolio such as ours that has duration as that mitigator of risk. Well, Peter, I think we're ending on a pretty compelling argument there. Thank you so much, um, again, not only for, for your thoughts, but for your time today. Um, and for our listeners, if you are interested um, in learning more about the Core Plus Bond Fund and how about Peter and his team run this strategy, please reach out to your Natixis wholesaler, or you can visit us on our website at im.natixis.com. Thank you. Important information. Standard performance is a percentage for Loomis Sales Core Plus Bond Fund as of June 30th, 2023. Class Y, 3 months minus 0.69%, year-to-date 3.12%, 1 year 1.13%, 3 years minus 2.81%, 5 years 1.46%, 10 years 2.33%, Class A at NAV 3 months minus 0.76%, year-to-date 2.93%, 1 year 0.80%, 3 years minus 3.05%, 5 years 1.20%, 10 years 2.07%, Class A with 4.25% maximum sales charge, 3 months minus 4.98%, year-to-date minus 1.41%, 1 year minus 3.46%, 3 years minus 4.45%, 5 years 0.32%, 10 years 1.63%, Bloomberg US, Aggregate Bond Index, 3 months minus 0.84%, year-to-date 2.09%, 1 year minus 0.94%, 3 years minus 3.96%, 5 years 0.77%, 10 years 1.52%, 30-day SEC yield, Y, subsidized equals 4.38%, 
30-day SEC yield, Y, on subsidized equals 4.38%. Performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold. Current performance may be lower or higher than quoted. For most recent month-end performance, visit imnatixis.com. Performance for other share classes will be greater or less based on differences in fees and sales charges. Performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized. Returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains, if any. Top 10 holdings for the Loomis Sales Core Plus Bond Fund as of June 30, 2023. Company percent of portfolio Uruguay Government International Bonds 8.25% May 21, 2031. 1.42%. U.S. Treasury Bonds 1.75% August 15, 2041. 1.60%. Federal National Mortgage Association. Pool BF 0618. 2.5% March 1, 2062. 1.74%. U.S. Treasury Note 3.5% February 15, 2033. 1.83%. Federal National Mortgage Association. Pool BF 0653. 2.5% March 1, 2062. 1.90%. U.S. Treasury Notes 2.75% August 15, 2032. 2.45%, U.S. Treasury notes 3.125% August 31, 2029, 2.45%, U.S. Treasury notes 3.875% September 30, 2029, 2.55%, U.S. Treasury bonds 2% November 15, 2041, 2.60%, U.S. Treasury notes 4.125% November 15, 2032, 3.53%, the portfolio is actively managed and holdings are subject to change. There is no guarantee the fund continues to invest in the securities referenced. As of June 30, 2023 the fund held only three different currencies. Gross expense ratio 0.49%, Class Y share, 0.74%, Class A share, net expense ratio 0.49%, Class Y share, 0.74%. Class A share, as of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 31, 2024. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios and or yields may be the same. The 30-day SEC yield is a standardized calculation, calculated by dividing the net investment income per share for the 30-day period by the maximum offering price per share at the end of the period and annualizing the result. Unsubsidized 30-day SEC yield is calculated using the gross expenses of the fund. Gross expenses do not include any fee waivers or reimbursement. A subsidized 30-day SEC yield reflects the effect of fee waivers and expense reimbursements. The SEC yield is not based upon distributions of the fund and actual income distributions may be higher or lower than the 30-day SEC yield amounts. During periods of unusual market conditions, the fund's 30-day SEC yield amounts may be materially higher or lower than its actual income distributions. The Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index is an unmanaged index that covers the U.S. dollar-denominated investment grade fixed rate, taxable bond market of SEC registered securities. The index includes bonds from the treasury, government-related, corporate, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, and collateralized mortgage-backed securities sectors. Fixed income securities may carry one or more of the following risks. Credit, interest rate, as interest rates rise bond prices usually fall, inflation and liquidity. Mortgage-related and asset-backed securities are subject to the risks of the mortgages and assets underlying the securities. Other related risks include prepayment risk which is, the risk that the securities may be prepaid, potentially resulting in the reinvestment of the prepaid amounts into securities with lower yields. Below investment grade fixed income securities may be subject to greater risks including the risk of default, than other fixed income securities. 
foreign and emerging market securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Currency exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline. Currency exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline. Inflation-protected securities move with the rate of inflation and carry the risk that in deflationary conditions, when inflation is negative, the value of the bond may decrease. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit imnatixis.com or call 800-862. 4863. For a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information, read it carefully. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of July 19, 2023 and may change based on market and other conditions. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited purpose broker dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Distribution, LLC, Fund Distributor, Member FINRA, SIPC, and Loomis, Sales and Company, LP are affiliated. Add tracks, 1468912311. Expiration date October 31, 2023. POD June 25, 2023.